Welcome everybody to Clock Shop. I'm uh, Sue Bell Yank. I'm the executive director here. It's wonderful to see you all here. Um, I just have a quick question. Who has been here to Clock Shop before? Okay, great. Well, welcome back. And for those of you who haven't been here before, welcome for the first time. We're really, really glad to have you. Um, Clock Shop, uh, our mission is to work with artists to deepen the connection between communities and public lands. We do that through our partnership with California State Parks over the past 10 years with arts installations. We hold um, a Listening by Moonrise series in the park at LA State Historic Park and other state parks. And we also host conversation series like this about important issues relevant to those um, ideas here at our clock shop space. So we're really happy to have you here. Um, of course, we can't do this work without acknowledging that the land we gather on today and every day is originally and still inhabited and cared for by the native first peoples of this region. Clock Shop is very dedicated to growing and sustaining relationships with local tribal governments, including, in no particular order, the Fernandeño Tataviam Band of Mission Indians, Gabrieleño Tongva Indians of the California Tribal Council, Gabrieleño Tongva San Gabriel Band of Mission Indians, Gabrieleño Band of Mission Indians Quiche Nation, San Manuel Band of Mission Indians, and the San Fernando Band of Mission Indians. So there's many, many tribal groups that um, occupy this land as native first peoples. And it's through a commitment to truth, healing, and elevating the stories, culture, and community of these original inhabitants that we try to play a role. And you can also learn more about the ways that we as an organization are going beyond land acknowledgement to build solidarity with native peoples um, on our website, clockshop.org, on the about page. And um, the other thing, uh, you know, it's very relevant to this program, but our first series of this program was about indigenous and native um, sovereignty and land return, and you can listen to that full discussion on our website, so I definitely encourage you to do so. Um, but for right now, I'd love to, you know, it's, it's fun to be here in person, and uh, one of the reasons I think the pleasures of being in person is to meet new people. So if you don't mind indulging me for just a minute, look around at the beautiful faces around you and for just like two minutes, introduce yourself to somebody new. Not somebody that you came with, but somebody new. And maybe ask them what brought them here today. <laughs> All right, thank you. 
I know you just want to keep talking. <laughs> but consider that an invitation to continue the conversation. Um, I'm also very interested in meeting, meeting all of you, you know, so please feel free to introduce yourself to myself or to our amazing clock shop staff who've helped put this program together. Um, when we were conceptualizing this program series, uh, a two-part series called Dreaming Land Back into Reality, it wasn't so much about, we weren't so much interested in discussing, you know, the conceptual merits of the idea of land return or land back or what that kind of meant. It was much more, how does this practically happen, right? What are the legal, the social and cultural, the relationships, the political strategies, you know, what sorts of things really need to happen in reality. And I think part of it was feeling this resonance with this current political moment where this is in, in the zeitgeist, this is in the discussion, it may not be forever, you know, but we're starting to see some cases and some success. And the folks that we put together on this panel um, are really at the leading edge of making that practically sort of happen in reality. Uh, so those are a few of the, you know, that's how we kind of wanted to um, conceptualize this program series. And I want to thank uh, the Mike Kelly Foundation for supporting this series. Um, I also want to thank our incredible program staff, um, Kat Yang, our program manager, and um, a special shout out to Isabel E. Jimenez, our new programs associate, who really took the lead on putting this one together. And I, just a huge um, thank you to Gina Klein, our photographer, long time, and uh, Chris Votek, our fantastic sound engineer, and a big welcome to Dario Herrera, also one of our newest staff members in our community programs department. So we're excited to have this incredible group of people that we're working with. <laughs> Please do introduce yourself. Um, and I just want to also acknowledge um, the board members and partners who are also here in the audience. Andy Wong is our board chair. Um, I see a few other partners as well, Alan and Sarah, supporters and partners of Clock Shop. So thank you so much for being here. Um, so I uh, just one last plug and then I will completely hand this off. Uh, Sarah Rosalena um, is an artist that we've been working with for several years. Uh, to create a monumental sculpture, and it's going to be installed um, at LA State Historic Park in the Wetlands Basin on Sunday the 29th. So I want, it's called For Submersion. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece um, from an indigenous artist, and I'd love to invite you all to come to that opening on Sunday. It's next Sunday from two to four. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and then I'm going to introduce our wonderful moderator today, Teresa Huang. Um, I have been a huge Teresa fan for years now, and so I'm so pleased that she'll be helping to facilitate this conversation with this incredible panel. She has asked me not to read a long bio, so I'll just say um, the name of, of Teresa's uh, um, organization is Department of Beloved Places, and I think that kind of tells you what you need to know about her, so I'm gonna hand it over to you, Teresa. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. Um, thanks, Clock Shop, everybody. Um, good afternoon. Happy New Year. Um, it's really exciting. So today is the Lunar New Year. The year of the rabbit has officially started, and I don't know about you all, but the year of the tiger was rough. So I'm excited for just like 
abundance and prosperity and like all the cute and beautiful things that rabbits do. Um, I think this is sort of like my dreamiest way to start a new year, like speaking and hearing in conversation with just transformative, visionary, rebellious disruptors that are actually making change in, in, in the land, in, in the world, and, and the systems um, at play. So I feel nervous because I think this all actually means a lot. So I feel excited. Um, hopefully this is a beautiful way for us to collectively start the new year together um, and really hopefully sets a tone for where we can possibly go, you know, not just this year, but, but ongoing. I think the work that um, everyone will talk about is, is generational and lifelong. Um, and just, I feel so blessed to be able to hear about the work that they've been able to do um, already. So just quick introductions. April Banks is an artist and creative strategist. Um, George Fothery is a real estate attorney with Sidley Austin. And Kavon Ward is the founder of Where Is My Land and Justice for Bruce's Beach. Um, as just like a quick format so you all know where we're going to be going, um, each of our wonderful panelists will get a chance to just have more in-depth introductions. Um, we're going to have a few questions um, that I've set up internally, and then we're going to end with an open public Q&A um, and discussion. So with that, sure. I guess I can get mic. started. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Clock Shop, for putting this together. Thank you all for being here, and thank you to the panelists for being here with us as well. Um, I, you know, so one of the the prompts was to just talk about how I got into this work, um, and I will say that I, for as far as I could recall, I think I was 11 years old when I saw Eyes on the Prize and just remember being so upset about how black people were being treated. And I remember as a little girl just wanting to be able to do something about it. Um, and from that point on, I was just passionate about civil rights, about Malcolm X, MLK, and all the other amazing black folk who fought for black liberation in this country. Um, and as I got older, I just could not believe that I had still been um, facing obstacles that so many people had fought, fought to, um, to dismantle. Um, and, and so there was just this desire within. I don't know where it comes from. It was a desire within to do something to make the world better for black people specifically. I felt like I was called. Um, and so I used to be on the Hill as a Congressional Black Caucus fellow and then eventually was um, a lobbyist for a national nonprofit organization um, for children, youth, and families. And, and at that point, when I was in my early 20s, I was like, okay, I've arrived, I can make a change. But I didn't realize how deeply entrenched racism was until I started working for that organization. And then ultimately had to sue them for racial discrimination and retaliation. Um, and it was five years of hell. It was five years of being blacklisted on the Hill. It was uh, five years of just being without financially, not knowing how I would support myself but it was five years that uh, brought me closer to God. And um, I started asking questions like, why am I here? Why is this all happening? Um, and then I received answers. Um, and I realized that the more I tapped into my spirituality um, and the more I connected with the Most High, the more answers I got. And I realized that at that point, I was going to be called to do something for the betterment of black people. 
Um, and so in June of 2020, actually in May of 2020, shortly after George Floyd was murdered, um, I remember us being all confined to our homes. And I remember just because during that five-year period, I had become this poetic activist on the East Coast. And I started bringing awareness through the arts um, about the, just the senseless murders of murders of black people by law enforcement. Um, and so when George Floyd was murdered, there was this fire in my belly again, this anger, this wanting to do something that resurfaced. And so because we were all confined to our homes, I leaned a lot on a lot of the, the, the Facebook and social media groups for, um, to be able to express how I was feeling about the issue. And I remember posting something on a mom group in the South Bay on Facebook and my post being deleted. And I remember other black mothers posting about how they felt like black lives didn't matter and their posts being deleted. And then I remember women mothers of other uh, races and backgrounds posting about the same thing. Um, some posts were even more radical than mine and theirs were not deleted. And those other mothers saw the same thing happening and they said, you know what, how about we create a safe space for black people to be able to express how they feel about what's going on. And so we started a group called Anti-Racist um, Moms around the South Bay, which later turned into anti-racist movements around the South Bay. Um, but I remember prior to starting that group, someone on um, a different platform sent me a blog post about Charles and Willa Bruce. I think it was uh, written by the Daily Breeze shortly after the name of the park was changed to, to Bruce's Beach Park. And I just remember skimming over it, not really paying any attention to it because I was still just hurt by what had happened to George Floyd and how black people were constantly being murdered. Um, and then another one of the moms in that group I had co-created co sent me that same blog post. And because I'm so tapped into my spirituality, I felt like the Most High was sending me a sign to really pay attention to it, and I did. And I remember just feeling angry again. Just, I was full of hate. Um, not so much for white people, but for white supremacy. And the fact that it still exists. And so uh, the group decided to host a picnic at Bruce's Beach to just illuminate what had happened to the Bruce's. Um, and then the rest I, I blame on spirit, right? Because I remember a reporter asking me what I wanted to see happen. And I think we were so focused on the plaque just being inaccurate and incomplete that people were like, the plaque needs to be changed. But in me, I'm just like, that's performative, right? What can we do of substance? And so I remember telling that reporter that I wanted to see policy change because of my advocacy in the past and because of me being a public policy um, manager, I remember saying, I want to see policy change that would deed the land back to the Bruce family. And from that moment on, I tried to wreck my brain and figure out and meditate and really connect with source to, to guide my steps. Um, and then we got in contact with, uh, I knew I wanted to do something legally and legislatively, but I knew that decision makers wouldn't move unless there was unless the story was out there, unless there was some pressure, unless they were being tried in the court of public opinion. And so um, while doing all these interviews and testifying before the Coastal Commission and, and 
creating marches and protests. Um, I also try to figure out ways legally that we can get the family some representation. So I introduced them, the group and I introduced them to, um, to public counsel. And public counsel worked very, very, very hard to get the family representation. And I'll let George talk a little bit more about that when he introduces himself. But um, that was essentially what happened. We, we, when the lawyers stepped in and when um, the city of Manhattan Beach uh, responded to the marches and the protests by creating this performative task force that was supposed to study the history, and they did, and, and, and to, supposed to talk about what repair means for the Bruce family. Um, we learned that the land was in fact no longer owned by the city of Manhattan Beach and that it was owned by the county. It had been transferred from, to, from the city to the state and then from the state to the county. And that was our saving grace. And so um, we'll talk more about that later, but that's my introduction. I hope it wasn't too long. I, don't, I hope I'm not overstepping, but I'll leave it to George. Thanks so, thanks so much, Kavan. Um, and thanks everybody for coming out on, on New Year's Day. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks Clock Shop for uh, organ, organizing and bringing us together for this important conversation. It's very fitting that I follow Kavan in the introductions because she is the reason that I'm here. Um, because of her, um, as she said, anger <laughs> and advocacy um, that created an opportunity for, uh, for me uh, to volunteer my services. And so I will share a little bit of my background and, and I'll start, I loved how you start, started with your 11 year old self. I'll start with my 11 year old self. Um, and I, you know, I'm, um, volunteering has been super important to me my whole life. I think it's something my, my mom instilled. I was raised by a single mom. I remember being in the fifth grade and the first time I ever volunteered, it was a canned food drive. And I came home, uh, took every can out of our pantry, like emptied the pantry and then took a wagon around the block and hit every door and took every can out of every pantry on the block. And that was my first kind of volunteer. And, and throughout my life, it's, it's remained important. Um, I grew up in Chino, about an hour uh, southeast of here in a um, kind of the, the lower working class of a, of, a, of a working class neighborhood. Went to public school in Chino. Um, uh, I did my undergraduate at, at Harvard College where I studied government and religion. And when I graduated, I went to work in the private sector and I became a, a management consultant, a strategy consultant, advising companies on ways to, you know, kind of do business better. <clears throat> I did that for a couple of years. I, um, I ended up uh, starting a, an internet company, a dot-com company. That's uh, at the time, early 2000s, when everybody was doing that. Um, it was a complete disaster. Um, uh, went back to management consulting, moved to LA, uh, and joined a, a management consulting firm called McKinsey and Company, which is a big consulting company, um, and really loved that work. Um, but then something happened, and that is my first son was born. And when my son was an infant, um, he was diagnosed with a very rare intractable neurological disorder uh, that resulted in him having hundreds of seizures every day. And so we were, you know, basically living, you know, living in in the hospital with him, and. <clears throat> what this did for me is it is it made me really reflect on how I was uh, you know investing my time uh, professionally. Um, practically, it made no sense for me to be a consultant because I was on the road four days a week. I would fly to a different city on Sunday and then come back to town Thursday. But it was more than that. It was more than the logistics. It was like a feeling in myself that like you know this is probably not what what the good God put me on the earth to do. 
So I did a pivot and I left the private sector and I went to go run an education reform nonprofit that was focused on building high quality public schools in black and brown neighborhoods throughout the state of California, communities that had not seen, had not had access to quality public education in decades, if not generations. So I took that job. Um, and, uh, and at the same time I took that job, I decided, you know what, I, I, I want to continue my education. So I decided to enroll in an evening law school program. Had no interest in becoming a lawyer. Um, certainly had no interest in, in, uh, in becoming a corporate lawyer, which is what I am now. But I had been exposed to lawyers uh, in my career, and I, I appreciated how they communicated and how they analyzed issues, and really more than anything, how when they spoke, people listened, as you're all listening to me right now, so it worked. Um, so anyway, so um, worked for the nonprofit, went to uh, school at night to get my JD, never expected to practice as a lawyer. Um, but, uh, but got some advice when I was graduating that like, look, nobody's really gonna take you seriously as a lawyer unless you go and, and you join a firm and you practice for a couple of years. So that's what I did. And, and when I made that decision to go back in the private sector, the deal that I made with myself and the deal that I made with my family was, <clears throat> I'm gonna do this for two years and I'm gonna just try to learn a lot. I'm gonna try to become really good at it. I'm gonna you know, try to you know, just develop these amazing lawyer skills, legal skills. But if by my third year, I can't be committing, you know, a third, 25%, a third of my time to issues and organizations and causes that are important to me and my family, the deal was that I was going to bounce. And, um, and what was a shock to me was that it didn't take three years, um, you know, basically out of the gate from jump. Um, the firm that I had joined, I was able to build great skills, but I was also able to, you know, volunteer. And when you work as a lawyer, we've got a fancy name for volunteering. We call it pro bono work, but that's what it is. It's volunteering. You're doing work for free. But uh, basically from day one, I was able to, uh, to do pro bono work. One of the very first pro bono cases I took was I represented a Jewish couple in their 90s who were Holocaust survivors. And I petitioned the German government on their behalf to receive reparations from the German government, which is so kind of poetic when I think about the work that we've just completed doing. Um, I represented the Debbie Allen Dance Academy for 15 years. I, I you know, brought cases with students with disabilities so that they can have access to public education. So um, to my surprise, I've remained a, a corporate lawyer uh, for 16 years, um, and 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 the reason I've been able to stay in this profession is because it's allowed me to to give back and to volunteer. And it hasn't just been me; it's been I've been able to leverage my firm's platform and network and resources and the other amazing attorneys that I work with to do uh, work that's important to me. Um, my involvement uh, in the Bruce's Beach case kind of picks up. Uh, very much where Kavan's left off, and it was literally almost a, a baton pass. Um, and I had read the same article that Kavan had read, um, and I had the same reaction, uh, one of anger. And I spent, um, I spent probably four months, this was before George Floyd, I spent probably four months kind of researching different you know, rights or causes of action or remedies or ways that we could bring a, a suit to get the family of the land back. And at the end of that research, kind of lacked confidence that we had something that would have a high probability of success. And the last thing I, I wanted to do was to kind of reach out to the members of this family who had lost so much already, had been through so much, and get their hopes up uh, when I wasn't sure I could deliver. 
So we sat on the research um, until Kavan stood up um, and until Kavan began organizing and until Kavan convinced the County of Los Angeles to return the land. When I heard that, uh, the county was exploring the possibility of returning the property to the Bruce family. I had two reactions. My first reaction was, hallelujah, this is amazing, thank God, praise Jesus, like this is so beautiful and important. And my second reaction was, religious as well, uh, my second reaction was, holy shit. Um, <laughs> this, is never, this has never been done before. Um, there's going to be a bunch of folks, the same folks who didn't want the Bruce's to run this successful business 100 years ago. We got some of those same folks. We got a bunch of them. And there's going to be folks who try to stop this. And there's going to be a lawsuit. And this has never been done. And it's got to be done exactly right. There's no room for error. And if it's done right, there's a possibility that it, it can be used as a model. Um, and we can learn from it and, and hopefully teach and inspire other people. And so it's going to show you my lack of humil humility, but having that thought, this has got to be done exactly right, what I realized is um, I'm the exact right person to do this. I've been preparing my entire personal life. I've been preparing my entire professional career to be of service to this family in this moment to help them get their land back. That's exactly what I told the family um, when I spoke with them on the phone, and it wasn't until I heard the words come out of my mouth that I realized, like, that's actually probably true. Um, and so that's, that's my connection. That's how I get involved. I'm looking forward to talking more about the work later, but I, I want to pass it over to April, and I hope I didn't go over. <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is April Banks. Um, I am an artist, and I think I'm bringing a slightly different perspective um, to the discussion today. Um, I will first I'll say that I am, I am working with Clock Shop on another um, place keeping project um, in Sun Village. It's a black community that relocated out there when eminent domain and displacement was happening in other parts of Los Angeles in the 50s and 60s. And so we're working to commemorate their movement there. And so, you know, that's my connection to Clock Shop. And then my connection to this work, otherwise, I'll skip over the, um, the 11-year-old self um, and say that, you know, my, I got my start in architecture. So I studied architecture, and I was very frustrated by um, how my outlook was received in, you know, critiques and juries in my thesis process and so I was a little disillusioned with architecture and moved to Los Angeles. I was, I'm from Virginia, my family's many generations from Virginia. Um, and so I moved to Los Angeles and ended up going to graduate school here and that really set me off into this other course which was exhibition design for museums. And so I worked on cultural history and science museums and often found myself the only one in the room at the table in firms. Um, and then fortunately I wasn't the only person asking the questions, but like what about the other part of this story? What about the other people that I know were there in this story? And just realizing how um, ingrained it is both in the design process but in the way that discussions happen and it's so easy to um, 
write erasure into you know everyday practice of design and and so i it started to show up you know i always maintained an art practice alongside my design practice and so my work started to really look at you know what's missing what's the erasure i became obsessed with archives archival images historical images one of my first projects into this space was looking at my family's um, history in Virginia and a family home that had been multiple generations and kind of documenting its deterioration, a missing family heirloom, how oral stories are shared, collective memory. And um, so this work, you know, was happening kind of alongside my work in museums and like having these very different kinds of discussions about who gets remembered and how um, institutions archive and tell stories about what has happened. And so that dissonance was like making it harder and harder for me to be in both spaces. And so I left the private practice of exhibition design and decided to be a full-time artist, um, biting my nails doing so. And I still do consulting work on, on design projects that I find um, to be the right fit, and there are many that are happening these days. I worked on uh, Destination Crenshaw in the early start of it. Um, it's a, you know, a placekeeping project where people have not been completely displaced or erased. Um, this work probably for me really got the recognition um, that it deserves uh, when I'm working, when I was working on the project in Santa Monica called Belmar History and Art. And that was around uh, an erased neighborhood two blocks from the beach. You may have heard of the Inkwell Beach, which was at Bay Street, um, prime beachfront property. Um, so in the 50s, through an eminent domain process, this community was erased and pretty much forgotten. Like there's no, it's not, this, Santa Monica High is across the street and talking to students, it's not in any of their history, it's not in any of their lesson plans. And so through cultural affairs and several or other organizations, um, I, along with a lot of collaborators, um, put forth a community engagement process that led to a public, permanent public art piece and uh, graphic panels that tell the history of that story. So you can see that park now. It's newly named the Historic Belmar Park. And, um, you know, there's lots of elements to that story. There's a few um, parts of it. Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge some collaborators that I see here in the room. First, uh, Natalie here. Raise your hand, Natalie, who worked. Um, both um, in workshops at Santa Monica High, but also leading um, community through a, a poetry process. I feel like art is often the start of how um, the momentum that's needed for policy change. It gets people who are frustrated, traumatized, congested with um, you know their loss and trauma to start to to find a way to release and express, and then hopefully the momentum starts and that leads to change in policy. And that, it's happening now in Santa Monica. I also want to acknowledge Susu, who um, also 
hiding back there in the corner. <laughs> also uh, worked with Natalie in the um, world building class with the students at Santa Monica High, but has also collaborated with me on a short film that we did about the Inkwell Beach and that neighborhood and many other collaborations. There's, there's a workbook. Uh, we have a few copies here that you can take. Um, activity book that's part coloring book, part imagining stories, collage, using historical images from that neighborhood. And then um, also hiding back there, Gwen Wilson, uh, Venice-based artist, um, as we collaborate on the uh, Ebony Beach Club and bringing that um, to life. And so I think I will pause there and we'll... Great. Thank you. Thank you for just beautiful introductions. I think it's really helpful to know uh, where each of you will be speaking from. I love the 11-year-old origin story. Like, George, I can picture you with your wagon. Like, that's amazing. Um, but I think, it, you know, it's also important so much of what you're doing is built upon just so much of your own um, commitment to, to justice and um, how it's ongoing. And so, you know, this conversation is important because it is the intersection of reparations and land back. And, um, you know, Bruce's Beach is such an important milestone because it, it has been a successful win. Um, and I think so much of what is important to also point out is that we needed a lot of conditions in place for this to be successful, you know, and so, um, I love how you, you both mentioned this article that was forwarded to you. It's like there needed to be a writer who made that, you know, the, the role of the artist to actually start to make visible just even the legacy, the memories, the history of the places before we can even conceptualize what the necessary policy change is. Mm -hmm. And so I was, because sometimes this doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And I think understanding really just so much that has happened um, in order to get here. Doing a quick look back, like what were some of these like critical pivot points that you feel like were in place, um, you know, specifically in Bruce's, but also like I want to think larger in like the you know black land back movement. Um, and we can start. Do you want? Should we go start this way, or I don't know. You all chime in. Okay. What are some of the con conditions in play? Like you started to organize, but and you know with marches and right. protests, but like what made it start to like gain momentum? Like how did people actually start listening, paying attention? Have, you know, I think it had a lot to do with, and I'm gonna and we talk about artists and writers. Um, there was a writer; um, she still works for the Daily Breeze. Tyler, Tyler Evans. Tyler Evans was um, reporting on this from day one. And she just would not stop putting the story out there. And then uh, honestly, she was pivotal in, in getting a lot of local interviews for, um, for me and, and the family. Um, and then when the LA Times picked it up, that's when it was crazy in terms of it being a national thing. But um, I will say that you know, when we when I think about the organizing of it all and establishing justice for Bruce's Beach, um, it was also helpful to have uh, Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Color lend her hand to the strategic aspect of it. I, I would not have been able to do it without her 
Um, and just also just the motivation. There were times when I wanted to quit because of the resistance, because my life being in danger, because me being aiming Cooper as a result of it, because the city of Manhattan Beach was like labeling me public enemy number one. Um, and so there was all of that. And then the amount of abuse that uh, I dealt with from residents within Manhattan Beach, especially during those city council meetings. Um, and so, but I think once the city did the, uh, you know, they established that task force, although it was performative, it was important that they had the history subcommittee because we learned a lot about uh, things like, for example, who the land belonged to at that point in time. And so, and I always tell people, you know, like while I started this and while my, while my vision is what started this, um, it would not have happened but for the community members who got involved, who showed up at all those, the, the protests in the march and who testified before the Senate in the, in the assembly. It would not have been possible if people like George Fathery didn't step in. It would not have been possible if black LA didn't stand up. It would not have been possible if, you know, if the county, specifically Janice Hahn, didn't say, you know what, now I understand we own this, I'm gonna do what I need to do legislatively to help get it back. It would not have been possible without Senator Bradford and Assemblyman Aomara Sushi. And then let's not forget about what prompted that article, that first article to be wrote, written, the fact that the park was changed to Bruce's Beach. That wouldn't have happened without former mayor um, Mitch Ward and I'm not related to him now. So, right, so the movement for the Bruces started well before I got to California, but the movement to get the land back started when I stepped on the scene. And, and I, I just, and I also wanna say that, but for everybody being positioned, like the stars just being perfectly aligned and having the governor and the policymakers and George, and like, this wouldn't have taken place. So, um, I'm not sure if I fully answered your question, but if you want to add anything else, George, go ahead. Um, I think that was well said. I, um, I used to think, when I, when I think about how this happened, I used to think it was just perfect star alignment. Like everything had to, um, you had to be there. Han had to be there. You know, I played a role. Um, and I, you know, George Floyd's murder mm -hmm. was, an, was, was, was a catalyst and it was a catalyst. And so when I would think like that, I, and I, and, and I would think like that in response to the question I would get, of, you know, is this a model is what you did with Bruce's beach? Is that a model? And I was like, God, I hope not because like you needed everything like perfect on like, you know, the second Sunday of the leap year to get that exactly right. I think as I've reflected more about it, um, and, and, and I think this, this goes maybe to the, to the question, as I've reflected more about it, what I realized, it, it's not so much like that the individual stars were lined up. It's that there were conditions that created, uh, that were created that, um, you know, that made me be someone who feels like they, um, you know, they have the skills to, to, um, to have an impact and give back. Um, I, a lot of folks don't know this, Janice Hahn's father, um, Kenneth Hahn, uh, was a major actor in LA and, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. And after the Watts riots, when Dr. King flew to Los Angeles 
to kind of tour the you know the 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 destruction and the damage. Um, Janice Han's father picked up Dr. King at the airport and drove him around Los Angeles. So she grew up in a household where where you know racial justice was talked about. It was important. Um, the um, the storytelling, right? The reporters. Um, um, like, like to me, and that's kind of my, my focus now, or that's where I want to focus now, is there's so many of these stories, and unless we hear about them and unless we know about them, we, like, it's hard to do anything about it. And so um, I, I, I do agree that like, things were, you know, had to line up, but if you look at the conditions that led to those things lining up, it was um, information, knowledge, kind of knowing our history, knowing our stories, know, knowing what really happened. It was, you know, having allies, right? Having people like the Hans who, you know, who, who thought, you know, hey, this is the right thing to do. Um, it's having kind of professionals who have, you know, kind of, you know, kind of skill sets that can be lent to, you know, to certain issues and causes. And so it's those are the types of conditions that I want to see us continuing to support. Well, um, I agree. I feel like... Well, the project uh, at Belmar actually started before the pandemic, before the death of George Floyd, um, before all of this. So we were we were in motion, but definitely all of those things happening kind of um, create a, a momentum and a heightened awareness. Um, and I actually was asked to speak to that special task force at, at Bruce's Beach. And... So I had a comment that they wanted to know about, you know, the work in Santa Monica and, you know, what was a, what is an artist-led process like. And, you know, I was, it was over Zoom, but I was just kind of reading the room or the vibe and through the lines. And by the end of it, I was just like, you know, this is not a situation for an art piece. Um, and actually none of these instances, um, erasures, land thefts are, you know, for an art piece. The art piece is a, is a marker, a conversation starter, a reminder, mm -hmm. but that is not the beginning and the end. That's that right. should be just the beginning. That's right. And I felt like they were trying to put a Band-Aid mm -hmm. by, by hiring an artist mm -hmm. and trying to do it quickly. And at that point, it was already, you know, national news and I'm like this is this is not this is not my recommendation for a way forward um, and then they asked me to come to the full city council to which I declined because I was also kind of exhausted at that point I mean that's the other thing that this work can be really exhausting there's a lot of conversations a lot of emotional work and I just decided um, at that moment, Santa Monica was enough, and also I didn't um, trust the intentions, and I didn't know what I was stepping into politically, and so for myself, I just felt like that wasn't, but I was so happy to see and learn about Justice for Bruce's Beach and all of the ways that people showed up, um, all of the paddle outs, all of the, you know, um, gatherings at the beach. It's an approach um, that I think works well, not just for visibility and um, media coverage, but also in celebrating and, and keeping us 
motivated and, you know, full of energy and spirit to continue doing the work. And we also, during the pandemic in Santa Monica, I kind of wanted to take a, a quiet gathering approach. And so we had some silent meditations at the Inkwell Beach, again, trying to bring people to um, historical sites, one, both to kind of reactivate those sites, but also to um, bring people's awareness to it and also reuse those spaces where you know we used to be or show up. And so um, we had two meditations, I think. There might be some images in the rotations. Um, in honor, you know, we did it in the kind of the, the tradition of Ma'afa, which is paying homage to ancestors that were lost during the Middle Passage. And so you gather in silence at the beach with an offering of some kind to the water. And really, it was as simple as that, but it was beautiful. It was moving. A lot of us had been stuck at home, so it was like the first time coming out to gather, um, it felt like something that we could do safely. It felt like a counterpoint to the protests and the writing that was happening. And I feel like all of these are necessary, you know, when doing this work. Yeah. No, I think that's that's beautiful. It's like, you know, the ceremony and celebration alongside the protests and the rallies. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do we take have care of ourselves? Take care of ourselves, yeah, and each other. Um, no, Kavan, what you said is so important where, um, you know, first the name change and the new plaque of renaming Bruce's Beach, mm -hmm. you know, um, performative. What is that actually doing in terms of um, actual repair or, you know, shifting the institution? And so the fighting beyond to push something legal and legislative, like, that's such a clear line of what is the difference, right, between just a, a visible sort of like, here, see, we've done this, but in actuality, you know, every, the, the generational wealth has still been, you know, robbed. Um, and, you know, I think about Belmar and, you know, Bay Street, too, Inkwell, you know, is, is such an important place, but it is occupied by wealthy homeowners. And so I, I'm just picturing, you know, are these folks going to concede their land and actually give it back, you know? So I feel like, George, like you're saying, some of the stars aligning is also Bruce's was unimproved green space, you know? And so I think, was, was that helpful in some of the land back process? Because it wasn't homeowners who had, you know, legal ties to the land that had to then somehow do that, which is some of the larger fight, I'm assuming, in, in Santa Monica for something like this. I just want to um, yeah. say that the two plots of land that mm -hmm. was owned by the Bruces is not a part of Bruces Beach Park. It's mm. the uh, it's underneath the lifeguard, what is now the lifeguard training facility, closer to the Strand between 26 and 27. And to your point about just like them being, it didn't give back generational wealth, let's also think about it beyond the wealth factor. Mm -hmm. Like let's think about the community. Yeah. Let's think about how so many people are constantly displaced because rent is so high and they can't afford to stay anywhere for more than one or two years and build community. Mm -hmm. Like that's a problem too. It's mm -hmm. more than the wealth, it's about community relationships. Yeah. And that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And thank you for the correction, like mm -hmm. not residential improvements, but yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think some of the conversation we should also address, you know, so with the struggle and the campaign to return the land to the, the family, um, at the end of the year, the family then um, 
sold the land back to the county for you know continued usage and so just wanted to you know get your thoughts on that I mean this has been blood sweat and tears um, and also framing it in the larger context of, of, of movement work, you know, not just the singular project or these parcels. George, do you want to start? Or do you want me to start? Yeah, why don't, why don't you start? Now? <laughs> <laughs> Easy. Yeah. Uh, so how do I feel about the sellback to the county? Um, the first word that comes to me is disappointed. Um, while I understand that you know, the city of Manhattan Beach is still very, very anti-racist, and they refuse to even apologize to the family. Um, and, and let's also remember, if you didn't know... You said the city of Manhattan uh, Beach is anti-racist. I'm sorry, so the city of anti... Okay. I'm sorry, the city of Manhattan <laughs> Beach is anti-black. <laughs> let, me, let me correct that. They're anti-black, all right? And, and I want to also state that there were a couple of other black families who owned land on what is now Bruce's Beach Park and were removed, right? But there's really not much we can do about that because the city of Manhattan Beach still owns that land. So that's a testament of what, you know, what I believe Manhattan Beach would have done, which is nothing outside of something performative. Um, and so in, in envisioning the land being returned to the Bruce family, I also envisioned more black people being able to take up space in the city of Manhattan Beach. I envisioned Charles and Willa Bruce's vision being realized. I envisioned um, the land being held onto because of its historical significance. There were a lot of things that drove me to fight as hard as I did, right? But at the end of the day, the land wasn't coming to me. So I had no control over what the family decided to do. And while I am happy they had a choice, at the end of the day and they got it back, I will say, and if I'm being honest, I'm completely disappointed in the decision. Yeah. Um, before I get to, to the reaction on selling the land back, I, I wanted to pick up on the point about, you know, this is more than just, what's at stake here is more than just, you know, returning a parcel of land. In 1924, when the city of Manhattan Beach engaged in this, you know, this racially motivated imminent domain, what they said was, um, we need to build a public park. And we've got maps and we've got photographs of what Bruce's Beach looked like at the time and where it sat. And it's, um, you can look to the right and you can look to the left. And as far as the eye can see, it's just sand. It's vacant land. And in the middle, you've got this amazing two-story brick building owned by these amazing black entrepreneurs. So city of Manhattan Beach said, we need to build a public park and the park's gotta go right here. It's gotta go right where this building is. We can't do it to the right, we can't do it to the left. Um, they, the city drew a, a box um, of all the land that they would take. Um, they acquired, I think, 23 parcels of land. And the way they drew the box, the box was big enough and in a shape that they took via eminent domain every parcel of land that had a home on it that was inhabited by a black family in the city of Manhattan Beach at the time. Um, if you go to Manhattan Beach today, one of the things that you might notice is the lack of diversity. And there's not a lot of folks who are homeowners in that part of town who look like the folks sit on this panel. And so this was not just kind of 
taking a parcel of land from a property, uh, you know, from a family in the 1920s. This action had repercussions and sent a message that shaped the way that that community has developed and the way that wealth has been allocated in that community a hundred years later, with with really you know kind of no no end in sight. Um, so I, I, I wanted to flag that because I think when we when we talk about like what was lost and what was returned, um, what was returned like didn't kind of get to that the bigger issue of what was lost. In terms of um, and and again you know we'll take the opportunity just to make factual. Um, you know, you know, some factual um, uh, record setting straight. Um, to be clear, um, the land is still owned by the Bruce family, um, and and the family has plans to sell the land to the county of Los Angeles. That sale has not been consummated, um, uh, but we all expect that it will be. <clears throat> you know, look, um, I I think it's I think it's tough. I'm very what Kavan articulates resonates very very much with me. Um, when they got the land back, like we felt some kind of way, not, not as their lawyer, um, but as, a, as an American, as, a, as an African-American, I felt like I was getting land back, right? I, I, I didn't get a penny, right? I did all this pro bono. We didn't see a penny. My firm didn't see a penny. But when they got the land back, that was like we all celebrated. We all kind of felt like we won and we had, you know. And so I get, I, it, it makes total sense that there's this kind of emotional um, connection that that we feel about that land, you know. I guess I also I also come at it with a different perspective, and that is, you know, my clients and, and my clients are the four surviving descendants of Willa and Charles Bruce. There's only four uh, living descendants, uh, and those are my clients. My clients were robbed of their birthright, right? When they came out of the womb, they were like victims of of theft um, on day one in their lives. Um, the two of the clients are in their are in their mid to late sixties, and the other two are in their are in their mid forties. They've lived the their entire life, um, you know, as, as victims of fraud, um, and without the opportunity to be born in the life that their ancestors had tried to create for them. Um, The, they had some options um, in terms of what they could do. And, and one option certainly is, is to continue to, to own that land and basically to try to make it productive, to try to have that land um, you know, create and produce wealth for them. The issue, is, as Kavan alluded to, is um, even though that land was owned by the county of Los Angeles, it sits in the city of Manhattan Beach. So any development if you want to build it, that land's not entitled to do, you can't do anything with it. So if you want to build anything on it, a home, an apartment building, ideally a hotel, um, low-income housing, you need approvals from the city of Manhattan Beach, a city that to this day has not said I'm sorry uh, to my clients. Um, that type of, you also need uh, permission from the California Coastal Commission because it sits on the sand. Um, these processes can easily take a decade um, they're subject to litigation and lawsuits and politics and delays. Um, my clients, as I think uh, is understandable, um, are not 100% trusting of government. Um, 
kind of given, you know, given, forget what happened to their family, given their experience as African Americans in the country, that there's some kind of fundamental kind of distrust and lack of trust in government. And so from their perspective, I can understand a scenario where they would say, look, we're in our mid-60s, this, this land was taken from our family, but what was really taken from our family is the opportunity that ownership of this land represented. And that was the opportunity to, to have wealth and to invest in our, in our future, invest in our families, create wealth and pass it down. So from that perspective, and I, and I, and I think, you know, I, I might even go f so far as to say, if I were in their shoes and faced with this, you know, kind of decade long uncertain battle with the city of Manhattan Beach versus the opportunity to realize the proceeds of a sale and invest that today uh, in real estate, by the way, <laughs> um, but in real estate, in education, in family, um, in caring for, for elderly parents. Um, I get it. Um, that doesn't, you know, kind of soften uh, the disappointment, I, I think, that, 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 that people feel, that they wish that that space would, would be recovered and remain uh, a black space. Um, but I think when you look at, at what's going on and where that is, I think that is, uh, uh, I think that's, you know, that's the next chapter and that's the next fight. So that's right. Well, that leads me to, um, you know, this question I've been asking about, you know, what is reparations? And so reparations can be financial, it can be, you know, material, whether it's land or, you know, property, but what, what is really reparations? You know, it's repair. And then, you know, how do you repair the psyche? How do you repair the spirit? How do you repair the soul? And there are some, you know, people asking these questions. There's the book, Who Will Pay Reparations um, for My Soul? Um, and it's, I think as an artist, it's the, it's the work that I see. And again, you know, I don't work on the policy side. I'm usually working closely with people, with families. Um, and I don't really have the answers on like how to, how, to, how to do that repair or who, who owes that repair. And you know, just returning property does not do, you know, create that repair. There's still so much more um, you know, apologies. So Santa Monica's in the other side of it. They've just um, made an apology to the black community and then, you know, but an apology is not enough. That's an official piece of paper with a stamp and a seal on it. But what does that do? That's, that's, that's a, it could be considered lip service. It also can, you know, be the basis for legal action and momentum. And I know there are things like um, the right to return that's in place, which allows um, people who, descendants of those that were displaced to return um, for affordable housing, but not for property ownership. So, you know, it's a step, it's still not, um, equity, and so, like, what is repair? And so, I mean, I think I want to mention, you know, the Ebony Beach Club and uh, the daughter of the president, uh, Connie White, who is 88, who left Santa Monica um, and moved to the, the Bay Area after her father's property was taken, which is now um, on the, the side of the Viceroy Hotel. So if you know Santa Monica at Pico and 
um, ocean, prime beachfront property, there was, just like the Bruce's family, a beach club planned there because during segregation, you know, black people would come from other parts of Los Angeles for a day at the beach, have nowhere to go, to shower, to change, to eat. And so this was, um, and then the Black Beach, then called the Inkwell, was you know just two blocks away now, where Shutters is. If you in uh, the Casa del Mar, if you know that area, um, and so there was this this dream, this imagining of we can have a you know a place for leisure, for luxury at the beach. We can enjoy nature, and that's the space that I'm interested in. Of like, why is why are spaces of leisure of water, um, nature, contested spaces. Why is it such a threat to be a black, brown, indigenous body and at rest or at leisure, and why is that considered a threat? And, and I'm trying to connect that back to that, the kind of emotional or, so, or spiritual reparations um, as, as the other side of the financial and the material. And, um, I think it's a practice, it's a question, it's an experiment, like these are precedents that are being set, so how do, how do we go about this? I don't know. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think we need a more, a more thoughtful and more robust uh, understanding of reparations. What, what haunts me is really the immeasurable magnitude of what the Bruce family lost. Um, when I took the case, you know, I was obsessed by it. I was doing research all the time. And one of the things I researched was um, Conrad Hilton. It's the, Conrad Hilton Sr. is the founder of Hilton Hotels. He got started um, in 1914, a few years after Willa Bruce bought, um, you know, bought the, uh, the first plot of land. Um, he had come from New Mexico where, where her family, there were like a bunch of eerie parallels. And, and, and what's interesting, he had actually failed initially. He tried to start a bank and he failed with that. And I think about their trajectories and how they kind of started off kind of similar. And then I think about, you know, his dad was a, a wealthy business person who was able to kind of bail him out. And I look at the Hilton Corporation today, which has a, a value of about $40 billion. There's um, uh, Hilton endowed professorships. There's a Hilton Foundation. There's a Hilton Prize for Humanitarian Justice. If you look at the Forbes 400 list, there's uh, a half a dozen descendants of Conrad Hilton on that list. Um, and it's not, and, and, and so then you, you look at that and you look at like this return of, of land that's valued at, at, at 20 million bucks. And you think about, well, what did the Bruce's really lose? And not just what did they lose? Like if they would have been allowed to build this, they would have hired uh, you know, other black people would have worked and had a good job. They, there would have been people visiting the resort who would have been kind of inspired by these black entrepreneurs in the 1920s who had built this business. They would have uh, been philanthropic. They would have supported nonprofits and foundations. They would have founded a university, endowed professorships. They would have elected politicians. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, it resonates what April says when, when she says we need a more expansive view of what reparations are because we need a more expansive view of, of what loss has, yeah. has occurred. And can I just add something? I want to add that 
like let's let us be very very clear the city of manhattan beach did nothing to repair any of the harm they did to the bruce family and so they still owe that family they owe them so much um and so everyone's you know I, people have come to me and they said well you know that's all they get for what was what was taken and I, and i have to stop and say look the county did the right thing the county did what they could do they returned the land right but the 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 violation the civil and human rights the lost in, uh, business enterprise all of that the city of Manhattan Beach owes the Bruce family that and the other families right and so if there are folks out here who want to you know be activists and advocate for anything else i say call on the city of the Manhattan Beach to do the right thing for the Bruce family, for the Prelude, for all the other black families who had their, their land stolen. Because there is no repair for those other black families at all. Yeah, no, I think that distinction of making visible what was lost mm -hmm. physically, spiritually, emotionally, but also holding accountable the systems, institutions, and very real people that committed the harm um, is so important. Because I think that's where we can move out of the abstract into what is actually tangible. Um, so I have a, a, a question that I've been grappling with um, that I don't even know how to begin to, to go about answering it, um, and that's how are we, how is this movement, this Blackland return movement um, in, in conversation, in concert with the land back movement for indigenous people? Um, we're talking most of the time about um, a land loss of you know anywhere from 60 to 100 years. But this is land that is unseated that was stolen even before you know we had the opportunity to buy it and so you know i've been i've been doing like searching scouring for you know what are academics saying about this what are sociologists anthropologists and really not coming up with a whole lot of answers i found one book called um speculations of uh, fictions of land and flesh which is really looking at um stolen bodies and stolen land and like for, from 40 acres and a mule on like like re promising stolen land to a stolen people for reparations for slavery i mean and the land was never you know we know that 40 acres and a mule actually was not ever paid and so like what how do we how do we find um Solution is not even the answer. Like I, it's such a, it's such a burning issue for me. Like in this conversation, and I feel like we are not having this conversation. This is a conversation that I want to have. And even what is land ownership versus stewardship versus caretaking? Um, you know, what is a commons? What is a land trust? Is like should we even be thinking about? property ownership and real estate in the way that we do, especially in climate change and all that's happening 
um, along our coast. And um, I don't know, these are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> right. And, and, and the yeah. work that I do, it's like. Absolutely. And of course, right. I think that there is, you know, we've already, Where's My Land has already been in collaboration with a couple of indigenous groups. And we hope that there will be some collaboration moving forward to figure this out. Um, but I, I'm constantly having to remind folks that, you know, black folks didn't ask to be here. We were stolen from our land. We were stolen. We were brought to this country. We were told to build this country. We were forced to build this country up. And then when slavery was gone or whatever, when we were free people, we had to fend for ourselves, right? With nothing. We had nothing. And so there were folks who bought land, black folks who bought land legally, Right, And so when I say legally, we bought it from the oppressors and the people who took it from the indigenous people. Right, And so I, I oftentimes hear, well, what about the indigenous people? Yes, what about, yeah, yes, the indigenous people need their land back. But this is not, we're, we're not trying to pit movements against each other. We need to work together because the culprit is white supremacy and white people who took land. Right, And I find that oftentimes white people are the ones asking, well, what about the indigenous people? How about you start a movement? Are you willing to give back your land to the indigenous people? Because y'all own all of it. So don't try to put movements against each other. We're going to work together and we're going to figure it out. When, well, I'll just share kind of a special, in this journey, a beautiful data point for me was, um, it was the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors meeting where they were going to vote to uh, formally uh, deed the land back and people could call in, and one of the individuals who called in introduced themselves as a member of the Gabrielino Tongva tribe. Um, and I'm listening, so I'm like, oh my goodness, boy, this is gonna be <laughs> interesting. And they spoke in full support of the county, of the importance of the county, symbolic and otherwise, of returning the land. And so um, I, I was touched by that resistance to the temptation to be pitted against one another. Um, something else I want to share, and I think, you know, I think Kavan sees this as well. So um, this is not a, uh, this is, I'm prone to embellishment. This is not an embellishment. Um, every day I get an email and or a voicemail from all over the country from a black family who says, um, you know, attorney fathery, um, my great grandmother owned oil property in Louisiana. When her husband died, they forged his name on the deed. They stole our property. Attorney fathery, my family owned 100 acres of farmland in Texas, um, but the sheriff came with dogs and guns and said if we were there next week, everyone would be killed. Every, like, every weekend on Sundays, I get an IT message that my voicemail is full and I need to delete messages. And the point is, this did not just happen in Santa Monica. And Well, look, if it happened in Santa Monica, Manhattan Beach, you know it happened <laughs> Everywhere. in a lot of other places, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so I'm, left, I'm left with two reflections on that. One is, it's so imperative that we capture and, 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 and don't lose these stories. Um, to me, it's the ultimate kind of myth buster to this narrative that that you know white supremacy perpetuates. Of look, it's a it's a level playing field, and those folks just you know just couldn't figure it out. 
as much. They just, you know, they didn't work as hard. They weren't as smart. Like when you, when you, you know, read the story of Will and Charles Bruce and what they built and what they were building and what they were capable of, like these stories are so important to dispel this myth and to make sure we understand kind of what happened and we understand how we got to where we are today. The other reflection I have is like, um, in addition to, you know, these, you know, individual kind of case by case approaches, we really need a national comprehensive systemic approach to, you know, black land theft. Um, and I think, and I, and I think there's, I think there's a lot of ideas out there. I think some of them are even good. Um, but I think, um, what we've got to realize is like we don't have to get like we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good like it's better to do you know something and we'll learn from it right we'll we'll experiment we'll, there'll be trial and error we'll kind of figure it out we'll get better but we need to do something um, and we need folks including you know all of the folks in this room and all of the folks that we talk with to understand that it's important we we do something because if we don't um, the same success that city of Manhattan Beach citizens and officials had by drawing this rectangle, eminent domain rectangle, 100 years, the same way that like you look at that city now and, you know, and they accomplished exactly what they intended to accomplish. If we don't kind of collectively understand these stories, understand the histories, understand how we got here and come together and do something comprehensive, like the, the, the discrepancies we see in income, kind of wealth creation, uh, and all the you know education, health outcomes, it, it'll continue to persist. Yeah, and I, I just want to add, like, thank you, George Fathery, for sending folks our way to. <laughs> we we now have six hundred claimants from folks across the country asking us to help them. But what people don't understand is that we need help helping these people. Um, and when we reach out to philanthropy to help, a lot of folks who have philanthropic organizations their ancestors are guilty of stealing land, so they're not helping us, right? And so if, if you want to help, we need it. Donate to Where Is My Land. You know, and we need, we need, our, we need our, our elected officials on this one, right? Yep. Because um, under current law, we just lack, we lack the, um, <laughs> we lack remedy. Like current law doesn't support uh, reparations. Um, current law doesn't give any legal remedy to folks who've lost their land in this way. And so we need our elected officials. Um, I'm working on a very small, small piece of that. And I want to share this because it's going to show you it's not unprecedented. Um, one of the questions I prepped for, and I know we won't have time for was, you know, what were some of the biggest legal challenges in the case? Um, it was all of them. But one of the biggest ones is one that I'm still working on. And that's the taxation, um, uh, our our tax code doesn't kind of it's it's like you know does not register, do not compute. You got like a black family who had land stolen and it's returned and it's worth twenty million. Um, and I'm saying these guys should not have to pay taxes on this. And and our tax code just doesn't kind of understand that. Our tax code says no, you got something and it's valuable. You need to pay forty percent of the value to the federal government. Um, so I'm learning a lot about this. And one of the things I'm learning about is, is Nazi looted art. Um, Nazis came in the 19, you know, in the, in the 1940s, they would take a painting uh, off the wall. They were very meticulous record keepers. So they would write down kind of who they took the painting from. They would actually, you know, pay 12 bucks for the painting or pay six bucks for the painting. 
Fast forward 30 years later, that painting gets returned to the granddaughter um, and it's worth $30 million. Um, the Internal Revenue Service figured that out. Congress figured that out. They figured out how to pass a law that says when that piece of art is returned to that descendant, we're not gonna make them pay tax on it. Right. right? They passed that law. We need our elected officials right. to kind of figure this out um, you know, when, when folks have our complexion. Right, and also the statute of limitations, right? There should be no statute of limitations when we're fighting for stolen land to be returned. And hopefully, we can work together on that as well. Mm -hmm. Should tell that to our indigenous brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, not so much on this point, but I do want to acknowledge um, all of the the culture bearers, the the holders of oral history, um, you know, that that I learned from on the project in Santa Monica, and that's the Quinn Research Center, um, uh, Black Santa Monica Tours, countless um, individuals that um, are still connected to Black Santa Monica or that still live there that made this work possible. And we always need people to be involved. I know it can be um, difficult or frustrating people have left the area or feel, um, you know, when you're dealing with a, with a racist community, you know, I've, I've moved on, we've moved on with our life and don't wanna kind of revisit this time period, but um, in these cases it really takes people um, willing to kind of reopen the wound. So we're gonna take um, maybe two questions from the audience before we close with a final question looking forward. Um, yeah. Hi there, everyone. First of all, thank you so much um, for your presentation today. I appreciate it. Um, I'm Tiara. I've been blogging with a blog called How the West Was Saved. And so I've kind of been doing advocacy work in the housing space for three to four years now. And as you said, it can be very political. And I don't feel like we've made a lot of progress with that housing. Um, so right now, I'm kind of in the process of recreating or bringing back to life the Freedmen's Bureau. From my perspective, as you were talking about, I would absolutely love to see more freedmen towns and communities. So I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? And April, for you specifically, I have been to a lot of the Santa Monica uh, City Council meetings. I'm supposed to go to the next one. It's either on Tuesday or Wednesday about the Santa Monica Airport. I do wanna see some land back for black Americans um, at that, what I think is the incorrectly zoned Santa Monica Airport. I was in Mar Vista for the longest time, worked in Santa Monica, was displaced from Mar Vista, so I'm not in that area anymore. But I think for the Santa Monica Airport, it should close sooner than 2028. More specifically, with the Santa Monica Airport and Pinmar Golf Course, we should be able to get land back, hopefully in a freedman community, so we can protect collective black assets, right? We need to have freedmen schools, freedmen, you know, things like that. I'm all for multicultural living and, and things like that, but we need to have a collective asset that is owned, especially on the west side, because we know black people have been intentionally displaced um, from the west side. So I think the rent thing that uh, Glean Davis, I think, introduced is great, affordable rent. We all want that, right? But I think we need to have collective ownership and then maybe as well um, within that 
property at the airport, some of that land, if it is privately owned, we can get it back to the working class, any dem demographic, we can get it back to the working class, black American, indigenous, you know, who, what other groups as well impacted by the issue of race and class, but I just wanna know your opinion, what are your thoughts on that Santa Monica airport, because it is supposed to close, and if we're gonna do land back, shouldn't we, you know, shouldn't it be something like that? And I love the project you did at Belmar, by the way. Um, I think it's wonderful. And like you said, art and all those things are, are wonderful, but we need tangibles, right? Especially to heal and to have these places of history and, you know, just being connected with the tribe. What do we do when we're detribed? And for me, the only thing, the way that I see to do that is to have these freedmen communities um, and basically reforming the tribe in that way. So I don't, even though, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about um, what's happening with the Santa Monica Airport property. I do know it's being decommissioned as an airport in 2028, but I don't know exactly what that means. Um, and, you know, one thing we didn't talk about was redlining and why, you know, people end up in certain areas in the first place. And to me, that's what the extra injury is, is like, you can only live here, and then that land gets taken. And so, um, you know, I know that was the case um, at the, the housing around, you know, the, what, second wave of the uh, black migration to the West. People came to work um, in the aeronautics and um, air, the airport industries, both here and out in um, Antelope Valley, and so, um, yeah, and then to be displaced again, either because of uh, the 10 freeway coming in or property values changing and, you know, things that displace people a second time. I don't know. I don't, I haven't done enough, I don't know enough about the airport, but I love, I love this idea of the, you know, I want to know more about land trusts and ways to collectively own property and keep them as a, as a collective um, versus, you know, individual land grabs that are flipped for for profit and displaced people, but it's not my ex area of expertise. I, I'll say as well, I know the Lowe's Hotel, I think it's for sale, so I've been, again, thinking of to petition the Santa Monica City Council to get them to help us buy it, but even with this, I've been, like we said, there's another black group there too that I won't mention, but it's weird. It's like some of these philanthropy, sorry, groups, they're black led and it's like they still don't wanna help, you know, with the movement. It's almost like they're asking permission and they're scared themselves to like dig into the root of it. Like I'm going to the black led groups in Santa Monica and West LA. I'm like, hey guys, Lowe's Hotel is about to be for sale. Let's like go try to buy that. Or matter of fact, since we're old repair, let's go ahead and get them to give that back, to get, buy that for us and that'll be one of our collect. You know, it's like they're so scared to do that and I can't understand like why. Um, so I've went above Santa Monica at this point to the state housing authority and I've asked the state to step in because it's like everyone there is so performative. It's like they don't wanna do the right thing. And I keep explaining to them, your affordable housing plan is great. Cool, whatever. We need more than that though. That is not enough. And I'm ex expressing that. I've had a call conversation with Phil Brock um, from the council on the phone. And it's like, there's no movement. For the last three years, we've literally seen 
no attempt at land back, not for black Americans, not for natives. I talked to them specifically about the issue of class. I was like, your blue collar workers cannot afford to live here anymore. What are you gonna do about it? And it's like, they're finding every way to go around not doing the right thing. So it's like, I think with the Freedmen's Bureau or something like that, we can maybe, you know, I wanna withhold my taxes personally in some type of collective, nonprofit, religious trust, whatever, and then I'm just gonna use my taxes and every, ask everyone to do the same. We're gonna refund ourselves and then start buying this property since you won't do it yourself, right? It's just very weird to me. There's like black groups there and they don't wanna, they don't wanna move the project forward. They're like, we did a call in one of our like calls with the black meetup for the West LA was interrupted by some of the white students in Santa Monica and they started like yelling racial slurs and stuff. And I'm like, why are you asking these people to exist, for your children to be able to exist and tell their history in these schools when we could go get the airport, we can go get other vacant land plots and build like a freedman school. We can do, you know, I, I love everybody, right? I have no problem with anyone, but there's no reason we should be in these spaces with these kids who are now interrupting our calls, calling racial slurs and stuff like that. I just think it's crazy. Like, how do we move past that? Yes, I, I've been following for a while. I just want to say that, you know, all of you were really inspiring, and the fact that Bruce's Beach won. You know, I, I, you, I felt the same chills. Our community felt the same chills you did in terms of that victory because as Japanese Americans, and we, we, you know, fighting for reparations before and understanding that maybe that wasn't really reparations as it should be, right? So it's kind of learning a lot from the movement today. And I think we owe a lot to what you've done, what people have done before and continually, you know, reminding ourselves what this country really is about and I think, um, you know, I, you know, we're in solidarity with, with, with your movement. And I think that um, your words also were, your, your questions, your queries are really heartfelt. I mean, I don't know what else to say, but you know. Um, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I do have a question. What were some of the lessons you might have learned <laughs> from, from, I know, if you have time to answer that. <laughs> Ooh, big lesson I learned is um, make sure from safety is important, um, not just for myself and my team, but for the families and the groups, um, but just making sure, and we have one of our um, representatives from our Russell City descendants are reparative justice here, um, just encouraging folks to make sure they're ready for the resistance that will in fact come from this type of movement. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of how deeply, how harmful the resistance will be, but just ensuring that folks are prepared for it, mentally, spiritually, in every capacity, just prepared for it. And then also just, um, just making sure that I am partnering uh, folks who get land back uh, up with organizations who are doing work around what they can do to keep the land, right? And educating them about, um, about how to keep it, how to maintain it, the tax issues that come along with it and, and, and things of that nature. Hi, 
Hi, my name is Natalie Patterson. Um, I work with an organization called BEAM, which is the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. We're a national movement building, training, um, and grant making institution. And I come from the perspective of mental health and the impact of that on the life stressors that people of color and marginalized folks experience. And as I was listening to each of you, um, the mental health advocate in me was going, and what is the repair for that? For the thing that no one sees, but those who love you. Um, and I'm curious about how you see wellness organizations and mental health organizations partnering in these kind of movements, because as you all were speaking, I'm thinking, and you need support around your mental health and your team and preparing your, I don't mean it like that. I love your humor, but. Yeah, actually, you're right on, you're right on, but I, I, try, to, I try to hide it. There's no shame, right? No, no. And also recognizing that your clients, as they're navigating this, your professional expertise is not that, but this is an element of how we support clients um, in making the best decision and also the trauma that is experienced when people make a decision for themselves and their families and then the whole world has an opinion about it. Mm -hmm. And that was what I was thinking when the news broke mm -hmm. and people were like, I can't believe they're giving the lamb back. And I was like, word and it's not ours. And so like what's the relationship to mental health is really really what I'm offering and, and kind of the the conversation that I'm super interested in because I think part of why your lift is so heavy and why your lift is so heavy and why your lift is so heavy is because none of us are thinking of it from the, we're looking at it from our own individual expertise and saying this is what I have to contribute. And so who is the caretaker of making sure that all the things are locked in is what I'm actually interested in is what do you think is missing? Who do you need and who's missing? And also the challenge to everyone in this room is are you who's missing? And have you done the work to be in partnership and allyship in a way that would be meaningful to the people who are actually impacted, not just a bullshit plaque? Yes, that, that part, that part, that part. And yes, yes, yes. And that is something I, I think about every day. In fact, like I've made it possible. One of the things that I want to do a lot more for my team is make sure that they are able to take days to get massages or to just to have spotty, whatever it is that they need to take care of their, their selves. I know I, at the end of last year, I, I had a real, like a nervous breakdown essentially. And I said, I mean, cause it's not just the work of advocating, but I eat, sleep and breathe the traumas of these families because they come to us and they cry and they ask for, and they expect for us to be therapists, right? And then I came to that same question like, I gotta, what am I going to do to make sure I'm taken care of so that I'm not burning out and that I'm not having these, these breakdowns, right? Um, and no matter how amazing my team is, they're dealing with this too and they need their help, right? And no matter how amazing my friends and family are, there's just certain elements that I don't like because I'm always the emotional mammy, right? I'm always the one not wanting to put my stuff on other people. Um, and so I don't tell people about all that I'm dealing with. And, but it shows up. And so for me, I just make sure that I take the time I need to do what I need to do to get right. Because if I'm not right, how am I helping anyone else? You know, so I had to come to that realization and be like, you know what, this is not okay. It is not okay for you to feel this way. The abuse that you're getting is not okay. I mean, you gotta, you know, so I had, I literally took a month and just went to Africa 
because that's what I needed for myself. That's what I needed to reset and to come back and do this work. But that is a very, very, very important question. And that's why I urge when, when folks think about donating, they think about that stuff as well. They think about how my team of black women are the ones carrying all this stuff on their shoulders all the time. And really, because of how society is around black women, no one really cares. And we're expected to shoulder all the problems and be the strong black woman and not show when we need help or not ask for help. We're, that's expected of us. And so the moment we're lashed out, we lash out, we're angry black women, right? And so I think, I'm just gonna say that's a very good point and a very good question, and thank you. I think I've, well, I'll just say, my tendency is in situations like this, when people speak up, is to go and ask them to partner, to collaborate, which is how I met Natalie. I was um, starting the project in Santa Monica, went to a session that she was leading around wellness, and I was like, I want to partner with her. And what so. What she said was, I want to hire you. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 yes, yes, yes. Because I do believe in paying artists and cultural yes. workers yes. when we're yes. so often asked to do things for free. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm trying to learn to do is to ask for help, to say when I can't do what you're asking of me, but I know it needs to be done, how can we get help getting this done? Yeah. I, I appreciate the question as well. I've got you know, a, a bit of a mixed response on it. Um, I mentioned that I'm haunted by, you know, the fact that we'll never understand how much these families lost. Um, the other thing that haunts me are these emails and voicemails, um, because I don't return them. I can't return them, right? There's no, um, even if I had time to return them, like I, I said, there's no legal remedy uh, for any of this that exists. Um, and so that, uh, that's very, um, that destroys me, right? That's very heavy. Um, the, the mixed part of the answer is, um, is just the, the joy and the honor and the privilege that I feel at being able to use my educational and professional training to be of service to something that's, that's bigger than myself. Um, it's, it's not something that I ever you take for granted, and I um, we sometimes as a lawyer, when you do pro bono work, you have this very false image, but you have this image of the pro bono lawyer as the superhero, and you kind of put your cape on and you go, and there's some kind of family or individual or nonprofit that needs help, and you get to be kind of a superhero. And what I can tell you about uh, the representation of my clients in this matter over the past two years is is that like I was a beneficiary as much if not more than than they were from what they taught me um, about um, about grace um, about patience about about dignity um, uh, about kind of their sense of, of justice. And so um, it is, you know, um, it, it is very, uh, it's very exhausting work that we all do. Um, and how I recover from that is is just 
um, is just you know is, is just through the joy and privilege and honor that I feel at 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 being able to serve. Thank you. That's such an important question. I mean, one thing that came to mind around what was lost. It's like, can you imagine how much intergenerational joy would have been passed on if the Bruce's resort still existed, right? So instead of just the trauma, you know, the need to be resilient was passed on, the, the, the celebration, like the leisure, like we would be in living a different life. And so, you know, I know for me, sort of the, the value of collective liberation is, is my North Star. So I know when I there can be black spaces of leisure, you know, then there can be leisure for everyone. And so I sort of want to close with what is your vision, right, for the possibility for land back, for reparative land return? Like, what are your wildest dreams mm -hmm. for this? And, you know, so then what can we do to support those visions once we leave this room? Hmm. My wildest dreams, first of all, it would be that HR 40 that was introduced in 1989 by John Conyers, finally freaking passed. It's yeah. the bill on reparations, the national bill. The study, the study, right? Just the study, all right. So first, yeah. that's right. part one. Let's get, let, let, let us be able study. to study what reparations yeah. looks like in this country. And then if the wildest thing is like, it being voted on to like, whatever that reparations package looks like, um, that it actually happened and that land theft be a huge component within the reparations movement. Because when, we, when I think about reparations and the national movement for it, oftentimes they, they don't really talk about black land theft. And, um, and, and, and let me just make sure I say this, right? When the national movement talks about reparations, they talk about reparations for the descendants of enslaved folks for, for being enslaved, right? For their family being enslaved. A lot, people people say that this whole Bruce's Beach thing was a form of reparations. In my mind, it, it was, right? It's repair. But when we think about the movement, they say this is not reparations. And one of the reasons why I don't want to call it reparations because I don't want people to think that you can just put all these black people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and were able to buy and land. Um, I, yeah, they should get reparations for being the descendants of enslaved folks. And... They need to be paid for the land that was stolen. So I think there should be tears to it. And so that's what I'd like to see happen. And I'd actually like to see um, a bill passed nationally within the next three years to give us reparations, not just to study it. Wildest dreams. Um... I don't know, I think I might be stumped on that one. I, as, as far as, I mean, in my dreams, I'm always in the imaginary world. Um, I mean, I would love to see some form of the Ebony Beach Club re, rebuilt or reimagined, um, whether it's as a, um, an actual you know, business, but I think more in the idea of, of what it means to have a space for joy and for leisure and for rest and for repair and restoration. Um, and then I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna leave it at that. 
I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, I, I, love, I love the question, and my response is going to be way too modest uh, to be a, a Wildest Dreams uh, response. Before I, I give the answer, uh, you know, I just want to I just want to say thanks again. I don't know how you know I've, as I'm reflecting on our on our talk, it um, uh, you know the tone is is one that's thoughtful um, and and perhaps a little you know a little a little somber. Um, and I do think that um, what you know what we collectively accomplished um, first it had never been done before, um, and I think there is. A tremendous um, reason to to really have pride and joy and celebration um, and to marvel at how the newspaper reporters and the elected officials and the community organizers and the volunteer lawyers um, and the community kind of came together to do something that had never happened before so I think it's um, I think it's very joyful um, uh, I love the wildest dream question. My 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 modest uh, response to that is, <clears throat> so you know, there's a couple of of, of kind of tactical um, you know programs that I'd like to see implemented. And again, I don't want us to have kind of the perfect get in the way of the good. Um, but um, we need, in recognition of these daily voicemail and emails I get and the hundreds of emails that Kavan gets, we need to recognize this wasn't just Bruce's Beach. It wasn't just the five families. It wasn't just the guy who called from Texas or from Louisiana. It wasn't just racially motivated imminent domain. It wasn't just financing redlining. It wasn't just racially restrictive covenants or zoning laws or entitlements or discriminatory lending practices. It was everything at every level, all the time, and it continues. In recognition of that, what we need is really kind of a, um, a multi-tiered kind of nationwide response. And so some of the ideas that I think I'd like to see implemented are we need, um, and this is, uh, I'm going to confine these to, to the idea of, of real property ownership, which I think is, is kind of a tried and true way to, to build, develop, sustain, and pass down wealth on an intergenerational basis. But you know, home ownership assistance, right? I mean, the issue is when you look at the at the you know the the net worth or the or the wealth that the average black family has, it's it's a tenth of what the average non-black family has, and so um, you know, down payment assistance to help folks kind of be able to get in the door. Once they make the down payment, the mortgage payment looks a lot like the rent payment th that they were paying, right? But it's that first piece. Um, some folks in our community, including a lot of folks in my family, uh, don't have a credit score that, that enables them to have the most competitive interest rate. We need interest rate subsidy, right, to recognize that like, well, the reason they don't have a 780 is, has a lot to do with things that uh, they're not personally responsible for. And so nonetheless, we're gonna subsidize and make their interest rate one that's affordable. Um, we need some type of, of, of safety net. And I, I was, um, the, you know, the, it, this is along the lines I read in this morning's Times about the renter assistance that LA City, I don't know if they voted on, I think they're going to vote on it. But one of the things is you can't be in, uh, evicted for being a couple of days or even a week late on rent. You get a month and you might get two months. And I think one thing we need to recognize is, you know, is it, is it some folks from our community they don't have like the financial cushion 
um, if they you know have a job loss or they have like an illness and they've got to move money around, they may not have the financial uh, uh, you know cushion to be able to make that mortgage payment. We got to provide some safety net there so that so that folks for missing a mortgage payment or missing two or three or even six don't lose the home that they've they've kind of fought and struggled for. So I think I, I think you know ideas like those. The other thing I think a lot about is is this this concept Kavan raised, which is you got property that was wrongfully taken from black families, but is now privately owned, including by black families. It doesn't matter what color you are, they own the land, like you're not voluntarily giving that land back. It's different if it's the government. Um, and so I've thought a lot about that kind of issue. How do we, it's one thing for LA County has this unused land, they're gonna give it back. It's another thing, like if you knock on my door and say, hey, Mr. Fothery, you probably didn't know this, but 100 years ago, your property was wrongfully taken from a black family. We'd like you to give it back. That's going to be a difficult dinner conversation. Um, and so, but one of the things that I, that I like is this idea of cities and counties looking at land within their jurisdiction that has been wrongfully taken. The cities and counties each year get property tax revenue that's generated by that land, whether it be privately owned, publicly owned, commercially owned, residentially owned, I'd like to see that property tax revenue that the County of Los Angeles receives each year from property that was wrongfully taken under racially motivated pretenses. I'd like to see that go in and, and form a fund that's used to help provide some correction. Okay, so I have to just go ahead and say it. Um, debt cancellation, um, free tuition. Those are my, some of my wildest Wild dreams. dreams yeah. Is that personally motivated or you're talking about the broader community? <laughs> I know, it is personally motivated. I have student loan debt and um, yeah. Cause that's also, you know, part of the generational wealth that keeps us from buying 100%. things. It's like all part of the cycle. You had to borrow money so, to do that and you didn't yeah. have down payment money. Yeah. 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 Okay, well. Thank you, Kavan. Thank you, George. Thank you, April, for all your love, all your labor, your creativity, courage, care, and transforming our world.